0: The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra-wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional-level expertise to the high-paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And I want to start out right now pointing out that there's still an opportunity to get my course that I've been working on for the last several months and have dumped in a lot of real money and real time into so that you can have the best personal finance product, digital product on the market. It's called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth, and you can check that out by going to wealthformularoadmap.com. You can still also get a copy of my book for free. It's Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth on wealthformula.com. Go ahead and check it out or text me 44222 and type wealthformula. That's one word. 44222 wealth formula. Now, I am about to head out to Chicago. Actually, tomorrow I fly out. It'll be the first time since uh moving to Santa Barbara uh, that I'll actually be back there and I hear it's snowing, which is terrible because it's uh it's been about, you know, 80 degrees uh, for the past, oh, I don't know, several weeks in a row here in Santa Barbara. And I'm going to go back to the snow. But anyway, I'm excited because I know I will get to meet some of you and um, hopefully uh, get to spend some time, maybe some cocktails with you out there in Chicago. And um, by the time this, of course, plays, um, the trip will be over. I'll be back in my office already because I usually don't I usually record these things about a week in advance. Uh, So anyway, if I got to meet you there, nice to meet you. And if I didn't, maybe next time. So uh, today's show, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, now, listen, I know I am not always easy on the wealth advisors. You know, I know I'm always ranting and raving about the evils of wealth advisors. But here's the thing. In reality, I have learned a great deal from some of them. You see, there's a difference, first of all, between wealth advisors who work for you and who are fiduciaries who aren't basically just living off of you as leeches uh, and just off of commissions. That's one distinguishing thing. The other thing is there's a big difference between wealth advisors who actually work with wealthy people. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, most of the wealth advisors out there are people who spent a few months doing a little bit of a, a course and, and and ultimately are helping the, the middle class and, you know, those uh, people coming out of med school who don't have a clue on how to manage their money. And um, it's not that they're bad people, it's just that they don't know a whole lot more than the people that they're advising. And in the meantime... The people who are giving them their money are just people who are just doing the right thing, you know, invest, you know, invest with the wealth advisor, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all that kind of good stuff. But when you get to the, you know, the superstars like the the people, the advisors who are actually working with the ultra wealthy as their fiduciaries. Uh, now, these guys, some of them are really sharp and they know some of the best kept secrets of the ultra wealthy, and as you know, that is a major driving force of this show is to uncover some of that stuff behind the veil. So suffice it to say, when you find people like that, you can learn a lot from them, and uh, they are different from your typical wealth advisor. And my friend Jim Du is one of those guys. I feel bad because I'm always hammering on uh, wealth advisors, but Jim is a really, really smart guy. And he is a guy who knows a ton about what's behind the veil of some of those ultra-wealthy people because he deals with them on a regular basis. He deals in the world behind the veil. So he knows all of their little tricks, and he can give us all sorts of tips. And that's what he's going to do this week. So when we come back, Jim do. These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in Wealth Formula Podcast is Jim Dew. He is the president of Dew Wealth Management. He has an MBA, a CFP, a CHFC, CPWA, and CDFA. I don't even know what any of these letters mean, Jim, but welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Buck. I should point it, out the that. The letters Jim... just mean that, that I have a big ego, I think. Right. I mean, listen, here. here's the thing. More importantly, Jim is a very, very smart guy. He manages the financial lives of some serious big guns there with lots of money, um, and he knows a lot of stuff. So I really, really like picking his brain. He has been kind enough to be on the show today for us. So anyway, w- welcome again, Jim. So, I don't want to Thanks, Buck. I'm happy to hear you, be here, my friend. So listen, I um, you are a wealth advisor, and you have the... Um, honor of being the only uh, and first uh, wealth advisor ever and that just says uh, to, uh, to to be on the show and uh, that's because I think you know a lot of stuff and, and tell us a little bit about your background because I think your analytical background is one of the things that I really like about kind of the way you approach things.
1: Sure, yeah, so my first degree was in mathematics with a minor of phys- in physics from The Stanford of the Southwest, University of Arizona. Uh, and, And I went on to become a math teacher. I wanted to change the world and actually enjoyed doing that for five years. Taught math and physics at a local high school here in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And then I went on to get my MBA from Arizona State University. Don't ask me about the different schools. It's kind of a split personality thing. Uh, And then uh, I got into this line of work about 23 years ago as a financial advisor and started with the big firms and did that for several years until I realized that the way the big firms were imparting advice was really more about the big firms than it was about the end user, the end client. So I started my own independent fiduciary firm 19 years ago, which was before anyone even knew what that was. And have been really focused on helping entrepreneurs and business owners make really smart decisions with their money. And that's kind of how I got to where I am today.
0: Can you just point out for people who might not know what is the difference when you talk about the fiduciary, uh, um, you know, the fiduciary firms versus the traditional model?
1: Yeah. So there's kind of three models to break it down, and it's very confusing to the general public. And I think that sometimes the industry wants it that way. So the three models are one would be a a broker that would, you know, I usually say if you recognize the name on the business card or you see it advertised at halftime at a ball game, you're probably, you're often dealing with a broker. So that would be someone who has a legal obligation first to the big company and then second to you. So they have a suitability obligation, meaning they can't put you in penny stocks if you're 90 years old but they don't have a fiduciary responsibility, meaning that they can overcharge or they can have hidden fees and commissions and things like that. The second category is in, someone would call themselves an independent advisor who has a broker-dealer and a registered investment advisory firm or an investment advisory rep under another registered investment advisory firm. So those types of people are dual registered, and so sometimes they wear the broker hat, sometimes they wear the fiduciary hat, And that's the challenge is that often in my experience, when I, I know a lot of those folks and they always, I shouldn't say always, but often I hear them telling people they're a fiduciary. And the truth is sometimes they're a fiduciary, sometimes they're not a fiduciary. Wow, that's almost more dangerous, right? Yeah,
0: that's almost more dangerous, right? I mean, because it's like now you, now you don't know whether they're really, you know, they're saying they're on your side and they're doing things Basically, just for your interest only, but you don't really know because they, it depends you know it's sort of a you know which hat am I wearing at the time, what I just told you, right?
1: Very true, yeah, it's confusing, and even advisors don't quite understand where they fall in the category when they're dual registered at times, and then the a fiduciary firm would be an independent registered investment advisory firm, and that's where. The advisor always falls under the fiduciary rules in the 1940 Act, which is really the gold standard for, for fiduciaries and has been around since 1940. So, you uh, know, all the talk with the Department of Labor and trying to regulate advisors and have uh, more transparency with the clients, I think the, the simple answer would be, in my opinion, just use the 40 Act and then just force people who call themselves financial advisors to just be upfront with clients and tell them, you know, either in writing, in very bold, simple terms, I'm a fiduciary all the time, sometimes I am, I never am, so that then people can decide based on that relationship whether they want to move forward or at least to know when they have to be careful about how someone is compensated if it's in a way that they can't easily figure out.
0: Right, right. So one of the other things that I like about your background, uh, Jim, and I'm I'm curious how this influenced you is your father is a, is a you know a physician right and and so you grew up with having you know uh, somebody like our one of our audience members as your father what 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 kinds of experiences um, that he had might have molded you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So my dad uh, was born in Martins Ferry, Ohio in 1925, and so I have a lineage going back on his side of steel mill workers in Martins Ferry, Ohio, and my dad grew up very poor. They moved to Massillon when he was a kid. My grandpa was out of work for seven years during the Great Depression, had to work for the WPA in a dirt and shovel job, Uh, but my dad was a World War II vet. He was in the Philippines in a combat zone, and then he went to school on the GI Bill and did his undergrad and his MD at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Ohio, and he and my mom moved out to Tucson, Arizona of all places in nineteen fifty-five to start his medical practice. So, you know, my parents had me went out there a little later. My dad's ninety-two, my mom's ninety-one. But my dad really cared about his patients and did everything that I think few doctors do today, to be fair. Uh, and to the point where I didn't want to become a doctor because he just worked all the time. But you know, pediatricians today. My understanding is that, that you know they're they're not going to the hospital to take care of the kids and the preemies. They're they're there in work hours. And my dad was up really early in the morning going to the hospital to see the babies, and then work all day in the office. And then afterwards, he'd go to the hospital to was see was he a pediatrician? the kids He's who a were really sick. He's so pedi- that that kind of gave me a model about the way he put his patients first, in some ways to the detriment of his own family. Uh, I I try not to put my clients to the detriment of my marriage, which is is strong and thriving after 25 years, but I definitely think about things the way my dad taught me that, you know, just like the patient came first, my clients come first in every regard of what we try to do here at my firm.
0: How about his financial experience? Did you learn anything about that. I mean, times are very different. I mean, you know, you're right. Doctors do work differently now. And a lot of that, though, is because reimbursement is different, right? Right. Um, You spend so much time doing really BS stuff, you know, a lot of paperwork and you're really practicing the way you have to see, you know, 10 times the, the number of patients that you used to see back in the 90s to make the same money. And so there are a lot of these kinds of things that really are dictated are dictating the way that people practice. But from the financial standpoint, even though, you know, these, uh, the, uh, the old timers, uh, were, you know, they probably work more than we do now. Uh, yeah. what they, they got reimbursed better. They did better. But what was your perspective on his financial personal finances and, and how that was managed?
1: Yeah. So my dad really wasn't a business person. He really had no clue about that stuff, but, was really all about security so I just remember my mom and dad would have these arguments because my dad wanted to put all the money in CDs and and cash in the bank and my mom would argue you know that you can't make any money doing that That you actually have to invest in other ways so they dabbled a little bit in some rental properties I remember in the 80s when you got really great tax breaks a lot of doctors were buying rental properties Um, you know it didn't go so well for my parents but they did get some tax breaks for a while Sure. And then they dabbled in some other things, but mostly my parents ended up being able to retire based on just that they were incredible savers. And so I think what I learned from my dad is number one, the value of, of saving money and not spending it frivolously. Uh, I also learned from him that security is important and financial responsibility is important. I also learned from him what not to do. And that is, you know, just to put money in the bank and, and, feel like it's safe and then go on and, and work your 60 or 70 hour weeks to try to make more money. Yeah. So I, I really have spent a lot of time in my career and in my own personal financial situation to learn, okay, I understand the hard work. My parents just said, you want more money, you just work harder. But I also think you have to work smarter. And that's where things like tax planning and investment management and all the things that you talk about with your listeners come into play about, you know, really being smart to move the ball forward rather than just putting it all on your back to work harder.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff. Now, let's talk about some of the ninja stuff, all right? Because I know you're really, uh, this is what I really like talking to you about. Not that I don't like talking to you about other stuff, but this is uh, this is where things get really cool for me. Because you know a lot of the the really interesting stuff that I think most people don't. And it's, again, that whole concept where you can take a lot of the things that, you know, the wealthy are doing and potentially bring it down to, you know, people who are not ordinary, but people who are maybe more six-figure types. Uh, maybe they're not worth, you know, $200 million, but maybe they're worth a couple million bucks, that kind of thing. Um, first, let's start off, uh, you know, we have the the Trump tax, uh, the tax bill, and there was a lot of changes. We had Tom Wheelwright on fairly recently that talked about that. And you and I recently had... Yeah, I know Tom. Yeah. I well, talked you, to Tom a week ago or so. Yeah, and we recently talked, you and I, a little bit about some of the things that uh, came out of that, and we were talking about the standard deductions right now. Can you can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies, uh, you know, some of the changes in the strategies that uh, you you're talking to your clients about? For that?
1: Yeah, let me just pick one that's I think a big opportunity for maybe a lot of your listeners and that's that the standard dedu- deduction is, you know, pretty much doubled. Of course, exemptions are gone, but that means that for a single person, you have a standard deduction of 12000 and for a married couple filing jointly, you have a deduction of 24000 So let me just take an example and, and show you where you could actually create a big benefit for your family. Let's say you're married, filing jointly, and you're bumping up against the standard deduction, so you don't have enough to itemize, so you're taking the standard, but you're close. And let's also say that you are charitable, and each year you give $10,000 to charity. So that $10,000, if you're claiming the standard deduction, you're getting no tax benefit for that gift. But you say, well, gee, I really like to give $10,000 a year to different charities, uh, if you have some cash sitting around, what you could do is you could start something called a donor-advised fund. You could put in that five years, let's say, worth of that gift, so 10000 a year times five, you could put $50,000 into that donor-advised fund this year. You would get the entire deduction this year, so you're going to get to itemize because you're going to go way above the standard deduction. And yet you don't have to dole that out to the charities that you believe in for any period of time. There's no special time that you have to give that money out. So you might say, okay, I'll put 50 in this year, now I get to itemize, and then I'm going to give $10,000 a year for the next five years to the charity. So the charities don't see it any different, but for your tax situation, rather than claiming the standard for the next five years and not getting any benefit from the charitable gift, you're getting the full benefit of the charitable deduction by itemizing. And yet then you can claim standard for the next four
0: years. That's pretty awesome. And obviously that, you know, for those high paid W-2 folks out there, that's, I mean, that's a pretty sweet move, right? I mean, you, you might be given five ten thousand dollars 10000 a year and all of a sudden, boom, all of a sudden your, uh, your deduction goes away. Well, here's a great way around that. Let's just, you know, take five years of it, put it aside and take the deduction now. I mean, that's a pretty sweet move. So that is called a donor advised fund right?
1: Yes, or DAF. It's easy for people to do research. They're very simple, no administration virtually, and low cost. And then on someone who has more money, let's say someone sold a business for $20 million this year, all of a sudden they have this huge tax bill in one tax year, but they also have a lot of cash. So if they have charitable intent and they go, well, you know, I'd like to give away hundred grand a year over the next 10 years, put a million into a donor advised fund, get the entire deduction when it's best for you when you're in the very highest bracket, and then you can dole it out over 10 years or, you know, any period of time you want.
0: Well, that, and that's that's uh, really interesting too. So if you particularly, yeah, because it, because especially if you don't anticipate having a lot of earned income in the following years, say if you just sold a business, right? And like you're saying, um, in the years afterwards, if you're basically making $100,000 a year, or you're paying yourself $100,000 a year, or whatever, or you're just living off investments, boom, that is a huge opportunity as well. I love that one. That that one's a really good one, too. So let yeah, me, and it's yeah. a lot
1: simpler than, uh, you know, doing at a million dollar donation, you wouldn't do a private family foundation doesn't pencil out. But you can get kind of the benefits of a family foundation without all the the complexity. So yeah,
0: I like that, that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, another thing that we talked about is, uh, something that I thought was pretty neat. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are getting hit by right now is the idea that, you know, they, they can't deduct, uh, all their property tax. I mean, there's a lot of people out there with, uh, pretty significant, pretty significant property taxes, and they're only going to be able to deduct a certain amount, but, if you make like Augusta, you might have another way around uh, to dedu- deduct a little bit more. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, so something that's called the Augusta Rule came out of the Masters Golf Tournament, which is coming up, and the other day I saw that, believe it or not, uh, Tiger Woods, and maybe this has changed, but a few days ago, Tiger Woods was uh, had the highest probability or the odds makers in Vegas that he had the best chance of winning, which is interesting, he hasn't won in five years, but the Masters Golf Tournament, Uh, really started this Augusta rule, and this is decades ago. So if anyone on the call has ever been to Augusta, you would probably be able to say that the golf tournament, the golf course, is incredibly beautiful with some of the most expensive homes in the country around it. But if you go into Augusta, Georgia, there's really nothing there. So there's not a Four Seasons or a Ritz-Carlton or anything fancy. So decades ago, when the wealthy and the professional golfers would come into town, they didn't want to stay at a motel six. So they started renting these beautiful homes around the master's golf club so that they could stay for the week. And the residents, some of them said, well, gosh, I can charge a boatload of money to rent my house for the week of the masters. So they started doing that. And then the IRS got involved and said, Hey, you should pay taxes on that as rental income. So this went all the way to Congress. And Congress looked at it and decided, look, you're not really renting your property if you let, you know, if you rent it out for a few days a year. And in fact, they made a rule, and this is uh, Internal Revenue Code 280A, 280A, if you're curious in looking that stuff up. And they, they made a rule where you could rent your home out to anyone for 14 days a year tax free. So it's in essence tax free income. So that's the the law. It's a bright line transaction. It's in the law. Uh, but you want to make sure that you follow the law appropriately. But where this comes into play is let's say someone has a business and there are things that they do for their business. Let's say, for example, they hold a holiday party for their employees and they hold it, let's say, at a, a nice hotel or resort. What they could do instead is they could actually rent their house. The corporation could rent the house for that event and then that income then is tax-free income for up to 14 days a year. You can obviously also expense off things like landscaping, maid service before and after. Uh, you have certain deductions on food and beverage. But the actual income itself is tax-free. So, for example, if you had a house that was really nice and you got comparables that were, I'll just pick a number, $5,000 a day to rent something like your house, and you did that 14 days a year, that $70,000 of tax-free income, if you're in a 50% state plus federal, which I don't know if you are, but just so the number is easy, that puts $35,000 into your pocket.
0: Yeah, that's, that's pretty sweet. And, and a couple of key things there are that they don't have to be 14 consecutive days. So, I mean, you could have, I mean, you could use this, honestly, for, you know, five or six parties that you have for your office or something like that. And um, in the meantime, your office thinks you're the best boss ever. Right. But um and then you turn around and as it actually turns out, you're you're actually making money on these parties by effectively, you know, paying rent. And that rent um doesn't have to be one thirtieth of your you know, of what your monthly mortgage is or something like that. The comps that Jim's talking about would be like a VRBO comp, right? And so if you've got a big house and maybe your mortgage is six, $7,000 or something like that, there's a pretty good chance that, you know, per day it's going to be a couple thousand dollars. So that's a that's a huge one that I didn't know about that I liked that one too. Um,
1: yeah. One other thing on that book, yeah. just, you know, VRBO might not be the right comp for your house. You know I mean? If it's the difference between holding your party at the Four Seasons and holding it at your house... You need to get comps on how much the Four Seasons charges Uh because if it's comparable and adds the same, you know, your house may have a barbecue and a pool and it may have an outdoor area, right? There there may be parts of that where you can find comps that would be much higher than a VRBO and still be legitimate. Mm -hmm. You know, always on these tax planning things, make sure you have a good CPA or tax attorney involved, but it's, it's a big opportunity. And you also have to have a lease agreement. Don't just do this, fly by the seat of your pants. You have to have a formal lease agreement or rental agreement between yourself as a, as a person and your as, and your company. So a lot of things to dot the I's and cross the T's because just because this stuff is legal doesn't mean you can't get in trouble if you don't do it right. Sure.
0: And again, that one's really going to be limited to business owners for the most part because you're not going to be able to do this if you're a W-2 or is there a way that I'm not thinking of?
1: It's going to be tough. You've got to have some sort of company that's got that's going to rent the home, you know. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could rent it to anybody, right? You could rent it to, you know, a colleague or a friend or something like that. But really, this is usually business owners that would use this strategy. Yeah.
0: yeah. Speaking of business owners, one of my favorite strategies is the captive strategy. And we have not really, um, you know, I've mentioned this with Tom and stuff, but we really haven't dived into this. Can you talk a little bit about the captive strategy, um, how it works and what the benefits are?
1: Absolutely. So captive insurance companies have been around for decades. And if you looked at the S&P 500, you looked at those big companies in America, almost all of them have captive insurance companies. You know, in fact, I believe that Warren Buffett bought GEICO using his captive. So captives have been around a long time. They're legal. They're in the tax code. Um, But recently they've become more popular with smaller businesses to use them. And there's no reason why a small business couldn't use them. So the first thing you have to remember about captive insurance companies is, it's an insurance company. You have to remember that first, second, and third. So some people try to run captives. There was a tax court case here in Arizona a couple years ago where the tax court really smashed the tax payer because they were running the captive all wrong. And they were running it really just as a tax scam. And you don't wanna do that uh, because if you ever get audited, you're gonna get into trouble. So you wanna run it as an insurance company and it does create the opportunity for you to transfer risks that you either can't find other insurance companies to cover or would rather insure through your own insurance insurance uh, company. So things like, for example, if you're running a business, you're a very high-level person. Let's say you're a doctor and you're in your, your clinic. You're very well-known. You're the face of the clinic. Well, if something happened to you where you got seen you know, um, hanging out with Harvey Weinstein or something like that. Uh, if you did something wrong or bad things in the media, your business could crash overnight, right? So how do you get that insured? Well, you can't really do that through State Farm or Allstate, but you can do that through your own insurance company. It's called reputation risk. It's a real risk, and for certain people who are the face of their company, it would be often smart to transfer that risk to an insurance company. So that's just one of many, but you can insure against a lot of things that either you can't get insurance other places or it would be uh, very expensive to get it other places. So it's a risk management tool. That being said, it has a lot of tax advantages. So the, the premium you would put into a captive, in general, that's tax deductible. So that saves you a lot of money there. And then when you close an insurance company down, so let's say 10 years later you sold your business or you wanted to unwind your insurance company, then the gains on that insurance company are capital gains. So it's kind of an arbitrage. You're turning ordinary income tax savings into capital gains on the back end, which is a nice arbitrage. And then you can also structure them to get asset protection so that you can protect against if someone sues you, that that money's not up for grabs.
0: You could take dividends too, right?
1: Yeah, you can take dividends. You can take loans. A lot of people do all kinds of things with their captives. You know, you could buy property with, by taking loans against the captive. I've seen that done. Uh, you always want to make sure, again, you have very smart people who are managing this and doing this for you, uh, because this is the kind of thing where the IRS doesn't like it, and they're kind of a hot spot for them. Uh, that being said, it is a bright line transaction. It's right in the code. It's 831B if you do a domestic captive, and then there's other options if you want to do an out of the country captive.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a this is really an incredible opportunity. I've I've had a captive in the past um, as well. And, uh, just like Jim said, basically you're, you know, if you have a business and you have real risk, you actually have to have an actuarial study too. I mean, this is, if you go to with the legitimate company, you're not going to just do this on your own. You're going to do this through a company that specializes in captives. And, you know, they'll put you through an actuarial study, determine what your kind of premiums you'd have, et cetera. And then, you know, you, you can hand off this money, uh, as a premium to the captive, and then the the cool thing is that the captive does not take that money in as income, right? It's it's basically the money that they have there sitting in the account to protect you. So from the captive side, you don't pay you don't pay taxes on that, and over time, as that money continues to you know, sort of accumulate in there. Uh, you can start taking uh, dividends because, uh, again, it's you know it's it's an insurance company, and you you know you own it, so you can take dividends from it. Um, and like Jim said, although there is some uh, some limitations to this, you can also you know you can literally borrow that money out over again over a period of time. You can't just put it in and take it right out, and and lend it to say a, a real estate LLC. Or something like that to, to you know to put money a down payment on property etc. and all of this has to be formal transactions. But again, like Jim said, it's one of those things. There are lots of areas, as Tom Wheelwright says, that are in in most of the tax code is gray. And as long as you do these things the right way, even if they tick off the IRS, well, it's the law. I'm sorry, right? I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to, right, Jim?
1: Yeah, very much. I mean, as I said, this is, again, a bright-line transaction, meaning this is nothing that someone's coming up with. Hey, I think what they said in the code was this. I mean, it's in the code. But just because it's in the code, you know, an an example I like to give people is, you know, I mean, if I do a business deduction that's a legitimate business deduction and then I get audited and they ask for a receipt and I go, I just don't keep receipts, well, then they're not going to allow the deduction, right? right? You have to keep... You, you have to follow the rules, uh, no different than when you go to the airport. If you're in a hurry and you're not doing anything wrong, you don't skip TSA and just figure, well, I'm doing it right, all right. You have to go through the process.
0: Right, exactly. So, Jim, tell me about your clients. Like, who are your typical clients? Who are your ideal clients? And, you know, obviously you do more than just, you know, help with investing money. You're doing all these other types of uh, planning things. So, so who is your typical client and, you know— uh, is there is it more of a holistic approach? Can you also kind of come in for, you know, just certain things um, that might sound interesting to you? Um, how does it work?
1: Yeah, so my clients are are primarily entrepreneurs and business owners, and I would say as a general rule, business owners who are, who are making a million dollars or more of personal income, which usually means if we're going to get into accounting talk, you know, like two or three million of EBITDA, depending on what what their company looks like. Um, And often it's business owners who are going to sell their business at some point in the next three to five years, or they've accumulated, say, between two and 50 million outside their business. That would kind of be be the sweet spot for me. Um, I generally like to work in cases where we can handle things and help with creating a dream team around them. So. I try to create and what I've modeled my practice office, kind of try to create a family office experience, but instead of having $500, five hundred, six hundred million or a billion dollars for people who have somewhere between, you know, two and fifty million, mm-hmm. but creating that same family office experience, which in essence is having a team, a dream team, whether it's legal experts, tax experts, insurance experts, and then I would kind of run that team and make sure it's run in a coordinated fashion that's collaborating and communicating based on the perspective of that one client so where we add a lot of value is in the tax planning in asset protection and estate planning and then we do a lot in investment management i think we're smart there but i also think that in in that business it's hard to say hey we're smarter than other people on investments because the only way you would know is to go in a time machine Ten years forward and then come back and see who did better right. but i do think that we're smart in how we manage funds for clients uh, from a tax perspective and a strategy perspective and transparency perspective because you know we're not getting any hidden things uh, the way other advisors may or may not be getting so it's a, a transparent relationship but where we really move the needle and add the value is in all those other planning areas and then You know, the money needs to be managed somewhere, and so we feel like we do a good job, and that usually pays the freight, although we do also some uh, retainer-type work uh, for clients. And generally what happens is, you know, even a client who has a lot of real estate, and I, I think real estate's a great investment, when you start talking about all these other vehicles, there are opportunities for other types of investments, and I always think it's good to have diversification, both having real estate if you don't, or having other investments if you don't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm for the most part, you know, I am also asset agnostic. I certainly do tend to prefer real assets, uh, you know, things uh, outside of the equity markets. But you get so much good stuff. How uh, how do we uh, how do we find you?
1: Yeah. So if someone had a quick question for me based on this call as a favor to you, and that doesn't mean one question, then 10 more questions. Right. (laughs) But someone has a quick question and I could give them some guidance you know, or if they thought that maybe we might be a fit, uh, you know, they can contact me just at jim at com. J-I-M at D-E-W-W-E-A-L-T-H.com. Great, Jim.
0: Jim, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today.
1: It's been great. I enjoyed it, Buck. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to the show, everyone. See, I told you Jim is a smart guy, right? There's a lot of stuff there that was really good stuff. I liked that Augusta role myself, and uh, I certainly will plan on using that in the future. In fact, you know, my my wife and I got invited to some kind of uh, event, you know, where they're raising money for a, a garden or something. One of those, uh, you know, one of those events that a lot of wealthy people go to. And, and, uh, and so we were looking up, looking up where it was and this is a house that was like on the market for like $50 million in Santa Barbara. And after listening to Jim, I'm thinking to myself, well, gosh, no, no matter. No, no, if I was those guys, of course I would put up, I would definitely take the opportunity to use the Augusta rule there. Right. Imagine that daily fee that you can get. Um, uh, and I'm not saying this is why they did it, but imagine that write-off, right? I mean, this massive property in Montecito that's, you know, on the market for $50 million. How much of a write-off do you think you could get for, quote-unquote, renting that baby out for a day? So uh, you see a lot of this stuff in action when you start looking around, and and that's, uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, Jim has done for us, has given us some of that information. So it was great having him on. Now, we have had lots of uh, offerings in a investor club lately. We've had a self-storage opportunity. We had uh, a apartment building in Phoenix. And these things have been turned out great. People have been real happy. So if you are an accredited investor, um, make sure that you do join Investor Club because you're missing out on the fun. You're missing out on the party. When I mean, we talk about theoretical stuff here, but the magic happens inside of Investor Club. So if you make $200,000 a year or $300,000 filing jointly or have a net worth of $1 million outside of your personal residence, make sure to join Investor Club because that's where the SEC allows the party to happen. Okay? Anyway, that's it for me this week. Uh, This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement?